It's always a little bit tricky because it's hard to listen to long portions of Scripture, uh, isn't it? But at the same time, uh, the point of the sermon is not that the pastor would come up and give you some really neat ideas. The point is that the pastor or the preacher, whoever he or she is, would articulate what Scripture is saying. See, Scripture is primary in all of this. The Word of God is primary in all of this. I read a devotional once uh, a number of years ago. It was a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year uh, devotional. And in the introduction, the author actually said, you know, in order to do this, you need two books. You need the Bible, and you need my little devotional here. But if you are going to give up one of those books, make sure it's mine, because the Bible is the important book for you to read. This is just to help. It's not the thing itself. So that's why we had the whole thing from D this morning. It's the whole passage we're going to be in. Uh, it's because the scripture is what is powerful, more so than the pastor. But let me try and help us understand a bit of what we've read here this morning. First of all, I want to tell you a story. Uh, when I was growing up, I was a big Mariner fan. Okay, the Seattle Mariners, the, the local baseball team. I don't know exactly what it was. There were a lot of things about going to Mariner games that I loved. Uh, I liked that you know, it, it, it was something that you could go to and you could enjoy, but there was also lots of cool food that you could go get if you were a millionaire, of course. I liked that uh, you could take friends and you could hang out and talk to each other while taking in the game together. It seemed to make both experiences better. To, to enjoy the game with your friends was more fun than to enjoy it alone. And to be with your friends at the game meant that you were doing something. You, you didn't have to try and think of, what am I going to fill up all this time with? There was the baseball game happening in front of you. So it seemed to make both things better. But my very favorite part of being a fan of the Seattle Mariners in the late 80s and uh, through the early 2000s, they really crushed my spirit over the last 20 years or so. I don't know if I can keep this going. But the best part was that Ken Griffey Jr. was a Seattle Mariner. Man, he could play. And it wasn't just that he was a great player. It was the attitude. He was having fun, whatever he was doing. He had nicknames. He was Ken Griffey Jr. His dad played for the Cincinnati Reds for a long time and, and was a great player himself and was part of a, a, a team that won the World Series, the big red machine, right, wasn't it? Uh, and, and actually his dad finished his career in Seattle. And there was a day when it never happened before, but father and son were playing for the same team, and they batted one after another in the batting order. And one day, both of them came up, and they hit back-to-back -back home runs together, father and son. It was cool to see it. Ken Griffey Jr. is a great player. His nickname, he, he was called Junior, and he was called The Kid and things like that, because he had so much fun when he played. He was always wearing his hat backwards and you know, pulling jokes on people. He was so much fun to watch. I remember I went to uh, the baseball game uh, in Seattle where he actually tied the record for most consecutive games with a home run. He'd hit home runs in seven consecutive games, and I was at the eighth game. We were all waiting to see what would happen, and you know, he came up to bat, and man, he clobbered that ball into the outfield seats. And we all got, and we jumped around, and we shouted, and we cheered. The best part of being a Mariner fan was watching Ken Griffey Jr. play. And then, tragedy struck. It was in the late 90s, 
and Junior demanded a trade. And he went to the Cincinnati Reds. And we all thought, well, it makes sense that he wants to go play for his, his dad's team. That was in his heart that he wanted to do that. But baseball in Seattle was never the same. You know, I wonder if, uh, first of all, how many of you I have lost already because you're like, baseball. But secondly, more importantly, I wonder if that's a little bit like what the disciples felt like when Jesus went to heaven and he left them. It'll never be the same. We have lost something that we can't replace. There will be more baseball seasons, but none of them will be as special without Ken Griffey Jr. There will be more life to live, but none of it will be as good without Jesus being present with us. Then we come to Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And they meet a man who's begging at one of the most prominent gates to the temple. Now, this man, begging at the temple was probably the best place you could go to beg. Because unlike most of the rest of the, the worldviews that were out there at the time, uh, uh, the Jews believed in giving alms to the poor. They believed strongly in it. Good people help people who can't help themselves. And this man was lame from birth. And there were no social safety nets. There's no social security or SSI. There's no disability where they can make income. There's no affordable housing in Jerusalem where he could apply for you know, government aid to help pay his rent. If he didn't have family who were able to take care of him, he had nothing and he had friends, apparently, and they took him to the temple gate every day, and they set him there, and people who were going into worship or coming out from worshiping, probably feeling a little extra pressure to be holy on the way in and out. Like, I don't know, maybe as you're coming to church, you think, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't listen to you know, that radio show that makes me really angry on my way to church, because that's not a good way to prepare for church. Or, or maybe, you know, you think uh, the night before, like, you know, sometimes I do this thing, and, you know, maybe I have a couple drinks too many or something like that, but maybe I shouldn't do it on Sunday or Saturday night, because I'm going to church on Sunday morning. I kind of want to be prepared for that. There's a lot to cover there about how we should think about these things, but I think we can identify, right? When people are coming into and out of the place of worship, they're feeling like, I should be worshipful in the things that I'm doing. And so, uh, it's a great place to go and ask for alms, ask for help, ask for money, because the people feel a little more guilty on their way in and out. And we need to help this guy. He may have had a fairly decent living in that sense. But we know from later on in the story that this is not the life he would have chosen for himself. A life with legs that didn't work, begging at the gates of the temple. Peter and John, on their way in, uh, meet this man, and he asks them for money. And Peter looks straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. Why would he have to say that? Maybe this man at the gates was ashamed to look at people as they came in and out. Or maybe uh, he just was shouting to the crowd, hey, somebody, you know, I need help here. Give me money. Peter says, look at us. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from him. And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Think anyone before Peter and John had the guts to do something like that? You know, I don't know about you, but when I meet people who are in need, my first response is to be overwhelmed. To be overwhelmed. Because I look at the size of people's needs, and I I tend to try and find every need I possibly can and think, I can't fix all of that. Have you experienced that? Maybe when you're uh, uh, coming out of the Mary's Vineyard Shopping Center, And they're the people who are uh, asking for alms, so to speak, in the median there on the stoplight on the way out. Maybe maybe you roll down your window and give something. Maybe you don't. There are all sorts of reasons you might do it. But I wonder if one of the reasons that we might do it or we might not do it is because we see here is a person who's probably homeless, probably has enormous needs, and I can't take care of all of them. And so I'm just going to pretend like he or she is not there because I am overwhelmed. Or maybe I need to give because I feel so guilty. <laughs> or, or maybe there's a real sense of compassion, and we, we, we take care of that in another way. But I'd imagine you've had that experience as well. When I worked in downtown Seattle, I worked kind of in Homeless Alley. And every day, walking to and from work was so hard because I would think, I need to solve all of these problems, and I can't. I'm liberated just a little bit when Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. What if that's the primary way God calls us to serve the people we meet? I can't give you what I don't have, but what I do have, I give you. I want to tell you a couple of stories. They both happened this week here at the church. The first is, uh, Dee, was it on Thursday that we met our, our friend outside? Yeah. So on Thursday, uh, we, were, we were here, Dee and I, in the office, and we heard some yelling outside, which is unusual. And so we went to the, the window and the door and kind of like peeking out, because, you know, you don't know if you really want to be involved. But you're looking out like, who's yelling out there? And, uh, and there was a guy who was yelling at the cross on top of the steeple. Uh, and, uh, you know, at first, it's kind of like, you know, hey, would you lock the door, please? Right? Because I don't really want to deal with, or I'm concerned about dealing with the person who's yelling at the cross on the steeple. And then I recognized the guy he was doing. He's been around here before. He's even been to church once or twice. Uh, he's interrupted an event or two we've had. And... Uh, and in all my interactions with him, I thought, you know, he's, he's got some issues, but I don't think he's dangerous. I, I think we're going to be okay. And then the second thing is I, I started to listen to what he was yelling at the cross. And he was yelling, you said that you would provide for me. Well, where's my provision? He was praying. And he was praying things that you would read in the Psalms. You said, God, but I don't see it. 
and an experience. And so I walked outside, and I started talking to him, which was a little scary. And, uh, and I, I don't remember how I opened. It was just something like, hey, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm really frustrated. Okay, well, tell me about it. He started telling me all about it. And we talked for a while. And you know what I was thinking as, as he was talking is, I can't fix these problems. I can't. First of all, I'm pretty sure he's schizophrenic. I can't fix that problem. Secondly, uh, I don't have a place for him to stay. You know, he's homeless and I, I can't fix that. But I've just, I've been reading this book recently. I finished it a few weeks ago. And it said, hey, I'm done with extraordinary. We are prisoners to this idea that, that as Christians, we are supposed to do extraordinary things. What if we just make ordinary attempts and trust God with the rest? So having read this book, I said, have you eaten today? He said, no. I said, well, let me buy you lunch. And I went to Exeter, and we had lunch, and we talked, and we prayed, and... I said at the end, can I drop you off? Somebody says, no, actually, I'm glad to be in Exeter. Uh, thank you. And that was that. And I have no idea if I made a lasting impact in his life or not. Let me tell you something, that's not my business. That's God's business. Not because, not because I shouldn't care or shouldn't work for these things, but because I gave him what I had. And it's up to God to make something out of it. Now, as I tell you this story about the thing that I did right this week, let me tell you that a couple of weeks earlier, I did it wrong. I came across somebody, and I knew he was in need. And I knew that God had brought him to me that day, and I ignored him. So this isn't about self-congratulation. Let me tell you uh, another story. Uh, this one uh, is about Dee. She had somebody uh, who, who we had all these oranges and apples, and she knew someone in the community who, she, I think that this person could use those apples for their pigs, and uh, called him up, and eventually he got back to her, and he came to the church on Friday, right, uh, to pick all these things up, and, uh, and while he was here doing this, you know, Dee said, yeah, would your kids like to come to Sunday school? We have Sunday school. And he said, my kids love Sunday school. She said, well, would you like to come to church with us on Sunday? And he said, yeah, maybe I would like that. Now, I don't see him here this morning. He didn't know what his wife had planned for him. Okay. <laughs> but that's not the point. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't tell the story if he was here because that would probably be uncomfortable for him. <laughs> but um, here's, what I, here's what I do want to say. There is nothing extraordinary about saying, I've got some apples for your pigs. That's every day, isn't it? I mean, maybe not, you don't experience every day having apples for pigs, but it's an everyday sort of occurrence. It's not extraordinary. And then someone comes, and it, it's not really extraordinary to say, do your kids like Sunday school? Are you connected to a church? It's an ordinary attempt. But it was well-received. And it was an opportunity for God to work. Let me take you back to Peter and John here. 
Peter and John, they're saying, Ken Griffey Jr. has left us and, and baseball will never be the same. And they meet this man and they say, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you. Get up and walk. And then what happens? It says he jumped. Well, before that, it says, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. It says he jumped to his feet, and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So this wasn't like a, okay, you know, I've, I've repaired the tendons and the ligaments. You know, the nerve cells are now transmitting. But, you know, you haven't used those muscles in a long time. They've atrophied. So this is going to take some therapy over a long period of time before you're ready to do these things again. It was instantaneous. It was powerful. It was like Ken Griffey Jr. hitting a baseball. Jumping up and taking away that home run over the wall. It, Whose ministry does this sound like? This is the participatory part of the sermon. Who does these things? Jesus. Jesus had ascended into heaven. He was, he was gone from the earth, but his ministry was still in operation in every way through the disciples, through the apostles. And folks, Luke didn't write this to us so that we would look back on it and go, isn't it great that 2,000 years ago, you know, Jesus' ministry continued for another generation? Luke wrote this to us because he wanted us to understand that there is power in our faith today. There is power in our faith today. And that's why I said, if you just make the ordinary attempts... If you just go and, and you, you say, hey, can I take you to lunch today? If you say, I've got apples for your pigs. If you say, you look upset, what's wrong? If you go visit someone who is lonely, there is the power of Jesus Christ in operation in you as his follower to start to transform lives. I believe, I haven't just believed, I've seen that Jesus still does miracles today. And I'm kind of a skeptic. Like, whenever someone says, oh, look at what God did, I'm always like, did God really do that? You want to hear this about your pastor, don't you? Did God really do that? You know, when people say, yeah, I, I saw, you know, I, I saw a miracle today. I'm like, did you really, though? Are you sure? I mean, I've got the modern rationalist bit in me that says, you know, most things are just the way the world works. You know, it's just coincidence. That's the first explanation I often run to. So when, when I say that I believe Jesus really does miracles today through his people, I want you to understand that I'm not looking around for, like, the, the face of the virgin in my bread. Okay, I'm saying, hey, there are actually healings that Jesus does that no one can explain. And I'll give you two quick stories. One happened right here. I have, I, while I say that I believe this happens, I, I don't think that it's common necessarily. I think God's hand is in everything. But these miracles of people jumping up and walking around when they've never been able to do that before are uncommon. 
But it was several years ago, someone uh, in the community checked themselves out of the hospital and went home to die. They were sick. They checked themselves out uh, against the advice of the people there, and they said, I'm just tired of it, and I don't want to go. And someone from the community called me up and said, Pastor, would you please come and talk to my friend because she wants to die. And so we went over, and I'm not trained for those sorts of things, just so you know. Uh, they didn't say in seminary, now when someone checks themselves out of the hospital early and wants to die, here's what you do. The five steps toward changing their life. No. And so I just went and I showed up and we started talking. And I said, why do you want to die? And she told me all about it. And I said, okay, well, here is who Jesus is. And let me tell you, if you know Jesus and you die today, you'll go be with him. And that is good. But the question I have for you is, do you think Jesus is done with you in this life? Do you think Jesus is done with you in this life? And she thought about it and she said, no, I guess I want to live. I said, okay, well then let's pray over your sickness. So we did. And, uh, and she wasn't sick anymore after that. And I don't know how to explain it. Frankly, I'm still not sure it really even happened. Was she really sick in the first place? You know, I, there are questions surrounding it for me. But that's what happened. My grandma Hodge was a woman who loved the Lord very deeply. And uh, she died, gosh, 25 years ago or more. More, I think, maybe 30 and she was sick for much of her life, but she was in the hospital one day uh, when my dad was a kid, and, uh, and as she was alone in her room, in her bed, an angel appeared at the foot of her bed and said, Lorraine, or whatever he called her, I wasn't there, Lorraine, Grandma Hodge, you, if you continue receiving treatment, will die. But if you turn down your treatment, you will live. And shortly after, the doctors came into the room, and Grandma said, uh, I'm done with treatment, and everything's going to be okay. And it was. And that's the way it went. God still does these things today. He does. But I don't think that they're the usual thing for us. I think we need to know that the power of Jesus Christ to make the lame people walk is an operation in our everyday lives and in our ordinary attempts. So what do you do? What do you do with this? Well, uh, everyone saw what happened to this man, and he was frequently at this gate. And so uh, when everyone saw him running around dancing and praising God, and by the way, clinging to the disciples through whom the power had come to change his life. They were astonished. All the people in the temple were astonished and came running over to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? I love the casual way that Peter addresses them. This is not shocking. <laughs> sure, the lame man's walking. This is like waking up for breakfast for me. You know, what's wrong with your stupid lives? He wouldn't say that. Why do you stare at us? This is why Peter says this. Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. You know what I think Peter is saying? I think he's saying to them, why are you so surprised? You say you believe in a mighty God. 
Why are you surprised when God does something mighty? Folks, do we need to hear that today? Do you believe in a mighty God? But do you expect him to do mighty things in your life? I think a lot of us feel like, yeah, that was the mighty stuff was like for the Bible days. You know, it's not for me. Or maybe we say, yeah, the mighty stuff is, is for other people, but not for me. And so you know what happens as a result is we don't make those ordinary attempts because we don't think that there's any mightiness in our faith. And I think that we, we believe and we become satisfied with our lives today. We're saying, I can't really be transformed because God is mighty for some people, but not for me. He can't really cure my addiction. He can't really take away my sin from me. He can't really love me because I believe in the abstract that he's mighty, just not in the real world. Are we living like God is really mighty? And are we living like he really wants to work powerfully through us? Why does this surprise you, says Peter? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? See, Peter had an opportunity. God had done a mighty thing through his ordinary act of get up and walk. And now he said, let me tell you what that mighty act points to. Let me tell you what it's all about. You say you believe in a mighty God, but maybe, maybe we don't really. Let me tell you about Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God you believe in, has glorified Jesus. You didn't recognize him. You killed him. Maybe the way we translate this in to today is, you know, people, we have areas of common interest with the rest of the world, don't we? With non-Christians. People everywhere generally want a just world. And so we find that common ground. We say, we want that too. And then when the opportunity comes around, we say, but is there really justice without Jesus Christ? I have a friend who's an ultra-liberal and, you know, the government has a solution for everything and all these different things. And, you know, it's, I don't care about the politics. I care about uh, the, the world view that either knows Jesus or doesn't. And as we, all these things have been unfolding in the world over the last couple of years, I had the opportunity to say to him, here's the problem. You can write, even if you could write perfect laws, which, frankly, I don't think we can pull off, but even if we could do that, we would have imperfect people who are enforcing them. And there would still be injustice in the world. See, we don't need perfect laws nearly as much as we need a perfect lawgiver. Nearly as much as we need our perfect judge. Can you have your just world without Jesus? Because that's who he is. Peter finds that common ground with them. We believe in the same God. He says, but here, you, you've missed Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, Jesus is the one who has healed this man. He is the Ken Griffey Jr. of our faith. And then he says, here's what you need to do. 
Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Are you weary? Are you tired? Are you feeling like, I don't know if I can wake up again tomorrow morning and do it all over again? Are you feeling like I keep trying to love those kids in my classes and I don't know if it makes a difference? Are you feeling like I keep trying to do right by the the workers in my business, but I don't know if they appreciate it or understand it? Are you thinking, I keep trying to do what's right in the world, but all of the the rules and the the societal injustices keep getting in the way and I I can't ever seem to get ahead? There is refreshing in Jesus. And ask that he may send the Messiah who is appointed for you, even Jesus. That the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a a thing that we say. It's a prayer for a new world free of sickness and death and injustice and everything that's broken. And then finally, there's the response. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Who else greatly disturbed the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees? Jesus. In Jesus, there is power to be like Jesus. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. Here's what I want you to do. When you came in, you should have received an index card. Uh, I want you to pick that up. <clears throat> and as we've been talking about all of this, uh, I want you to ask yourself, This sermon series, I've finally given it a title, which I should have done before we started, but that's okay. There is grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Acts, the might of a potent church. So it's not redundant, the might of a potent church. The idea is where does the power come from to make a potent church? And it comes because God gives us not only the responsibility for the ministry of Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit to empower our ministry so it'll be just like that of Jesus. So much so that we will engender the same sorts of reactions where some will say, we want nothing to do with that. Did you know that sometimes that means you did ministry right when you tick people off? Now, please don't go out trying to tick people off, but that's... Jesus did the same. People responded to Jesus that way. But some people responded positively as well, didn't they? In this case, not just a few, thousands at a time. So ask yourself, and I want you to write this down. I'm going to give you a minute or two to do it. Where do you need the power of the church in your life today? Maybe it's you're thinking of a person who's got a need and you have desperately wanted to help meet that need. Where do you need the church's power to fill you, the Holy Spirit to fill you? Not so that you can cure everything, 
but so that God has an opportunity. Maybe it's in your own life. You're thinking, I'm lonely, I'm afraid. Maybe you're thinking, this is not the life I thought I would have, or my world has turned upside down. And I need the power of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, for yourself, for somebody else, for the church, for the community, I want you to just take a minute, I want you to write it down. And when you go home, take this, you know, put it on your bathroom mirror, you know, put it on the pantry door, put it somewhere where you're going to see it, you know, put it at your work, somewhere where you're going to see it. And every time you see it, I want you to take a page out of Cal's book and I want you to pray for it constantly until you get the answer. I told Ray, held up Cal as, you know, that's how we should pray because Jesus uh, loved to tell parables about prayer. And one of them, one of the really good ones, I love this one because it's so weird, it's crazy. But Jesus uh, said, hey, what if there's a guy and he has a, a visitor who comes late to his house and he doesn't have any food to give him, which is really a bummer in a hospitality-focused culture like the one that Jesus lived in. He said, well, he would go next door to his neighbor and he'd bang on the door and say, hey, I need your help. And the guy would say, it's late, leave me alone, I'm trying to sleep. And she said, he, he, the guy kept banging on the door until finally, just to shut him up, the guy came downstairs and said, fine, take whatever you want, just leave me alone. And Jesus says, I want you to pray like that. I want you to bang on God's door at all hours of the night until he comes down to give you the answer. Now, let me... Be clear, Jesus is not saying God is like an angry neighbor who doesn't want to meet your needs. Jesus is saying there is something about prayer that doesn't give up, that transforms you and that allows God's power to work. So write that down. Take it home, put it somewhere, and start praying. And then God will bring you an opportunity, which I know is both... Uh, you know, an exciting thing and a terrifying thing, God will bring you an opportunity to make an ordinary act, to offer apples to pigs, to take somebody to lunch and see his power work.